Just as Oklahoma is so varied in history and culture, so are its many ghostly legends. It may be surprising for such a young state to have so many ghost stories, but be assured that our collection here gives only the cream of the crop, from an endless field of strange stories and unexplainable events in every corner of Oklahoma. The state boasts hauntings by Native Americans, Spanish miners, soldiers, outlaws, ranchers, performers, students, repairmen, and many more. Jeff Provine, Haunted Oklahoma, Ghosts and Strange Phenomena of the Sooner State. everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the America of America podcast. As always, I'm Will Milam and I'm so excited to get started. I am recording this on Friday, October 1st. Uh, I've had the show notes ready to go, but I really wanted to get in the mood. Um, October 1st obviously being the beginning of spooky season. It's October. Fall is upon us. The weather in Oklahoma City is already beginning to become much more pleasant. Of course, pleasant is a... uh, it's it's a relative term. Pleasant for us means finally under 90 degrees and maybe under 90 degrees humidity. But sure enough, fall weather seems to be coming in a gif, so I'm excited for that. I hope everybody else is looking forward to some better weather, perhaps some better football, and of course, the season of Halloween, which uh, is one of my favorite holiday seasons along with Christmas. Um, it's one of the great things to look forward to this fall. I'm also really looking forward to a more normal Halloween season compared to last year being 2020 and everything was still shut down. So I'm looking to bounce back from that. And uh, I hope to, uh, I hope to help all of you bounce back from that with uh, a selection of good Oklahoma ghost stories this month. And I've had so much fun um, reading these and I'm going to have so much fun recording these. And I hope that you have a lot of fun listening to these. Researching uh, this series of episodes has been surprisingly very easy and straightforward because there's been one guy who has really taken over as the, I was going to say unofficial, but really the official folklorist and keeper of this kind of cultural history, which is uh, Jeff Provine, who is a professor of English at Oklahoma City Community College and in his free time has really done a lot to chronicle the not only ghost stories is not the the correct term for it, really the the cultural inheritance, the cultural memory that we have in Oklahoma. Oklahoma um, being distinct between uh, the American state that we know that's you know a little bit more than 100 years old, which we obviously still have cultural inheritance from that, even though it's much newer, as well as the far, far, far older uh, Native American inheritance, even from civilized tribes, even going back further with the uh, Mississippians and the Wichitas. And Mr. Provine has done an excellent job um, keeping this cultural memory alive and telling the stories that need to be told. And he has published a bevy of books um, about hauntings and strange phenomenon in Oklahoma. And his newest one, which I really enjoyed, was Haunted Oklahoma, Ghosts and Strange Phenomenon of the Sooner State. I read an excerpt from it. Uh, in the cold open. 
a very nice listener actually sent me a, uh, a, a complete bibliography of Mr. Provine, and I've been going through it, um, trying to pick out my favorite ghost stories to put on the podcast. So if you have any interest in reading Oklahoma ghost stories, I really, really recommend uh, Provine's books. They're, they're very concise and very well written, and they tell some truly, truly great tales. And I hope to give everybody over this month a, uh, uh, well, a, a highlight reel, if you will. Our first tale comes out of Seminole, Oklahoma, which is a city uh, about 60 miles east of Oklahoma City, near the center of the state. Seminole is a town that is famous, um, like many towns in Oklahoma, for its racks to riches story in the oil boom of the 1920s. Obviously, a period of time where a lot of money was made very quickly and lost very quickly and produced a bunch of very beautiful, expensive things, which were then abandoned, which seems to be a perfect formulation for a ghost story. So our story begins here in Seminole. And it was there in the early 1900s that W.E. Doc Grisso, who we'll call William Grisso, married a woman named Maggie Rooker, who is described as a red-headed, freckled-faced, outgoing young woman. And this marriage would produce five children. And it's through the legacies of his children and his grandchildren that we largely have the stories of William Grisso in the Grisso Mansion. Now, it is said that William Grisso in the early days in Seminole uh, was very interested in land speculation, meaning that in the days of oil in Oklahoma, land speculation was important because if you were able to own lots of tracts of land and oil was found on that land, your land is now obviously worth way more because it's an oil-producing property. So these land speculators would go in and buy up ridiculous amounts of land with the hopes that oil would be found on the land. And this is what William Grisso did. And he did this at uh, a large credit line. He did this with a large credit line. So he went uh, way into debt to buy up a bunch of land with the hopes that it would become oil-producing. And Grisso's gamble paid off in Seminole, Oklahoma, in 1923, uh, found oil. Um, a Muskogee oil man tapped a well in uh, near Seminole, and now all of a sudden, William Grisso's land is is worth a lot more. So by the time 1927 comes around, the oil market in Seminole has gone from tapping oil in 1923 to only four years later producing one fifth of all the oil produced in 1927 coming from one place in Oklahoma being seminal. So needless to say, William Grisso is a very, very, very wealthy man at this point. And what do incredibly wealthy men do when they get a lot of money? Well, they spend it or save it or invest it or whatever they really want to do with it. But uh, one of the most common things is you build yourself a nice house. And that's exactly what William Grisso did. So in 1928, William Grisso built a mansion for his family, and it turned out to be one of the most incredible homes really in in, in the area, and by that I mean the multi-state area. Uh, not just in Seminole, not just in Oklahoma, but really the Grisso Mansion is one of the great homes in all of America. It is a 12,000-square-foot Italian-slash-European uh, Renaissance home uh, using imported Italian marble with painted frescoes, and at one time maintained 14 servants. For the rest of William Grisso's life, the Grisso Mansion would essentially serve as his court. Uh, wealthy oil men around the area would come and pay homage to him there. Oklahoma politicians would come and consult Grisso there. The parties thrown at the house were legendary, although 
to a certain extent because Grissa's wife turned out to be a teetotaler. So there were uh, n- officially no alcohol uh, served at the parties to the chagrin of our friend Alfalfa Bill Murray. He went and visited Grissa while he was governor, only to find that he could not drink beer or wine to his own disappointment. And like all men, Grissa was mortal, and Grissa passed away in 1955, and soon after his death, the Seminole Nation would purchase the Grissa Mansion. And it was at this point, after Grissa's death, that some spooky and ghastly and macabre rumors began to spread around the house and around Grissa himself. These rumors began with the fact that though Grissa was married with five children, that was not his first marriage, and that... Grissa's first marriage is, was involved with him and a much younger Indian girl. And Grissa, before he was a land speculator, was a doctor. He had gone to medical school and had actually dropped out of medical school to go be a doctor um, for certain Indian tribes. And Grissa's first wife owned certain allotments of land, um, being a member of the tribe, and died in what some would call mysterious circumstances. Now, you have to remember that in the 1920s, if you're a long-term listener, you remember the stories of the killers of the Flower Moon, meaning that it wasn't out of the ordinary for people to kill off members of their community or sometimes even members of their own family for these land allotments if their family members happened to be tribal members who could not sell that land uh, legally, but who could inherit or bequeath the land if they were to die. These rumors have never been confirmed or really substantiated but there were a lot of people talking about the origins of Grissos' land wealth. The first apparition scene involved the subsequent owners of the Grisso mansion would come home and they would see a woman standing in the middle of one of the windows on the upstairs, uh, on the upstairs story. Uh, and it became so frequent and so terrifying that they would specifically turn off the lights in the upstairs areas when they came home so they would not see the apparition. Supposedly, the most haunted part of the Grissom Mansion is the ballroom, eerily situated in the basement. Now, the ballroom was famous because it was said that Grisso, when he was alive, would have these wild jazz parties. And though I said that the official engagements between Grisso and local notaries and politicians and the like in the house were teetotaling events because his wife did not drink, these jazz parties were supposed to be wild and every single kind of crazy prohibition type speakeasy joint that you could imagine. Furthermore, there are even darker rumors that these wild jazz jaunts included uh, the use of native women as, quote, playthings, or as would be seen as something more like sex slavery or human trafficking. Now, again, these are also not really substantiated, but they do lend a darker air to the house, and especially the basement. Even now, paranormal investigators that go and seek to pick up EVPs, which is a term for electronic voice phenomena, it's basically where a microphone or a recorder of something is left to record in an area that is supposedly haunted that these paranormal investigators can somehow pick up voices that come across on the EVP, and the voices are supposed to be uh, the voices of the dead. Uh, a controversial practice, but you know it's it's a pretty popular thing to do. And whenever paranormal investigators come to the Grissom Mansion and they pick up one of these EVPs, the place that they are most likely to pick that up comes from the basement. So it's it's seen that that basement ballroom probably has the most activity, the most paranormal activity, maybe because someone died down there. 
And there might be some truth to that. Uh, it is often said that when there was digging done, uh, when the house was being built in order to, to carve out the ballroom in the basement, there was the body of a young boy around six found, the skeleton of a young boy who'd been buried there who was around six years old. And to this day, the most common ghost seen in the basement is that of a young boy. And what's interesting about this legend is that whenever people interact with the ghost of the young boy, the ghost will always say that his name is Miko. And apparently there have been independent people who have seen this ghost, who actually don't know of each other's experiences, who will maintain that the ghost has the same name. And furthermore, Miko is actually a very common nickname among young men of the Seminole tribe, further lending credence that there might be something down in the Grisso's basement that we're not really sure what it is, lending the house to a further sense of the unexplained. Currently, the Grisso mansion is actually for sale. If uh, it's for sale, uh, it's being advertised as a possible bed and breakfast or a possible uh, hotel, and it's on the market. So if you are in the if you're in the market for a uh, for a small hotel, possibly a haunted hotel to attract guests, I suggest you look up the Grisso mansion in Seminole, Oklahoma. So moving on from Seminole, Oklahoma, we're going to remain in central Oklahoma and we're going to move west to Oklahoma City, uh, my hometown where I have the most uh, personal knowledge of the ghost stories here. And I want to talk about a kind of a more lesser known, probably more known of the older generation of Oklahomans, but I'd like to talk about the old restaurant, The Haunted House. Uh, This story resonates with me personally because it was something that I didn't know a lot about growing up. Um, We'd always, I'd always known that The Haunted House was a very popular uh, fine dining restaurant in Oklahoma City, even though I never ate there. Uh, I think it was just the way my family was. Um, when we would have a celebratory dinner, we would always go to the Johnny's on Britain and sit in the back room and eat uh, Frankfurter sandwiches. So that's just the way we were. Uh, but my dad always talked about uh, the haunted house as being this this extraordinarily nice and fancy white tablecloth restaurant. But he would always talk about how his mother, so my grandmother, would never tell him why it was called the haunted house. And she implied that she knew what had happened there, but she would never talk about it. It, it seemed to be a painful personal memory for her. So this story always intrigued me. The most glaring, interesting piece of information about the haunted house restaurant, firstly, was its location. Uh, it was literally a home before it became a restaurant. And not only was it a home, but it was a home in a secluded area. Uh, the Haunted House restaurant was always a place that you, if you were going there, you had to intend to be going there. It was not anywhere that you just so happened to be passing by. Maybe some people did that, but I imagine that wasn't uh, a common occurrence. The home was built in 1935 by the Carriker family. The Carriker family was led by Martin Carriker, who was an automobile salesman in the Oklahoma City 1930s. How automobile sales in the middle of the Great Depression on top of the Dust Bowl were that good, I have no idea. We're not going to ask those questions. But anyway, he was doing well enough to where he could build this reclusive mansion out in the middle of the woods. Though the characters lived there for many years, our story really picks up in 1963. It was then when Mr. Carriker, Martin Carriker, was found dead in the woods outside of his property or in, on his property outside of his home, having been shot in the head with a 22 caliber bullet. 
To add more mystery, this was two days after Carriker's stepdaughter had reported him missing, and the cops, seizing on a lead, had assumed that she probably was the prime suspect. However, she was acquitted when she went to trial for her stepfather's murder, but even though she was acquitted, the social and economic damage had been done. Uh, At this point, she had lost much of the fortune. She had lost all of the social prowess that her family had built up, and the house would eventually go into foreclosure. According to Mr. Provine, her spirit refused to leave, and her body refused to leave. And she was found dead in an upstairs bathroom, which we debate today whether or not this was a suicide or whether or not this was a poisoning or if it was a suicide, if this was uh, depression from being uh, left in ruin or if this was guilt over the murder of her stepfather. But she was found dead in the same property that her stepfather had been murdered in several years before. Soon after Margaret's death, the house would be acquired by the Tybalt family who would begin the haunted house restaurant. Now, wild fact about this that the Tybalts didn't believe that the house was haunted and the Tybalts denied that Margaret's ghost was there, which seems to me a very strange coincidence considering they decided to name the house or they decided to name the restaurant the haunted house while simultaneously playing down and denying the ghostly relations to the home. But though the Tybalts would deny this, there was often sa- it was often said that a woman's presence would be felt or an apparition would be seen in that upstairs bathroom exactly where Margaret had died. And apparently this was an ongoing presence that a lot of people would see, people who had never actually heard the story. Now, perhaps there was a ghost there, perhaps this was the power of perception, but the complicated history of the home, coupled with kind of the eerie out-in-the-woods mansion that was turned into a fine dining restaurant served as a perfect backdrop to one of the oldest and most enduring and most interesting ghost stories that exists in all of Oklahoma City. And unfortunately, the Haunted House restaurant is closed, so we won't actually be able to go there and have dinner. I was very sad to hear that. But it does leave us with a sense of legacy of foreboding and a legacy of longing of those kinds of older homes that still exist in Oklahoma City. And if you haven't gotten where I'm getting at, I am making a foreshadowing to the Overholzer Mansion, which we're not going to get to this week, but I promise we will get to this month. The final story we're going to talk about today is also more of a personal story because it involves a house that, even though I never lived there, I spent a significant amount of time there. And this is 763 DeBar Avenue. Um, DeBar Avenue in Norman, Oklahoma, it's on OU's campus. It's been renamed. Uh, Let me find out what they renamed it. So DeBar Avenue is now Dean's Row. Uh, Apparently, the DeBar um, from which the name comes from, I think, was a Klansman way back in the day. So obviously, yeah, it's pretty problematic history. But uh, for our purposes of the story, the house is called DeBar. Um, DeBar. We we just referred to the house as DeBar because it was on DeBar Avenue. We have no other name for it, and I can't come up with a better name now. So 763 DeBar Avenue, the DeBar House, was a home that when I was in college between 2014 and 2018 was a, was a home that had two stories with two separate apartment complexes that could house up to nine people in the entire house. 
um, when I was a senior in college, a lot of my uh, fraternity brothers lived there and I had, an inv- I had an invitation to live there, but I really liked where I was staying, so I didn't stay there. But all my friends moved in. And because it was the single largest location that all of us lived, it became the social center. Uh, before we would go out to the bars on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, we would all meet there and that's where we would congregate to decide what we were all doing. Uh, I saw very fine, found uh, very fond memories of that house, especially because it was my senior year of college and, you know, I was, it's kind of a first victory lap, but that house had a very checkered history that we didn't know about until I was at uh, a CVS or a Walgreens in Norman. I can't remember which checking out. And I remember this was in October, so it was Halloween season. And I saw a copy of Campus Ghosts of Norman, Oklahoma by Jeff Provine, who is obviously the folklorist who I use uh, as my primary source of research for all of these podcast episodes for uh, the ghost stories. But so I, but the reason I picked up that copy of Campus Ghosts of Norman, Oklahoma is that the house on the cover of the book was the Debar house. It was the house I was literally driving to uh, when I left the CVS. And I thought, oh my God, I have to grab this and I have to show the guys. So I grabbed the book, of course, and we and I drove immediately to the home and I showed it to all my friends and we were all sat around and we had to read what had happened there. And we had found out that in 1996, uh, a young man living in that home had had a fight with his roommate about cigarettes or something and ended up stabbing his roommate to death, decapitating him and walking naked down campus corner to throw the guy's head, which was in his backpack in a garbage can. And when the cops found him, he was sitting in a bathtub at the Debar house and without his hearing aids and unable to really hear or see what the cops were doing. And according to the cops, he was unresponsive and seemed to be frazzled and confused that it was shocking and unbeknownst to us that such a crime had occurred there. And since then, apparently there had been sayings and people feeling that some of that bad memory, some of that bad energy had remained at the Debar house. And that would be a story in and of itself, but I actually have a story from my senior year of college in that house. That same bathroom where that young man had sat in where that young man had sat in the bathtub where he after he had murdered his roommate after he had stabbed his roommate to death uh, one of my friends was taking a shower now to describe the layout of the debar house there is an apartment upstairs and there's an apartment downstairs there are living rooms both upstairs and downstairs they're they're separated but they're separated by a staircase But because everybody knew each other in the house, it was pretty easy to come and go from the first story to the second story, people coming in and out. So it was more of like almost like a smaller style frat house. So one day at the Debar house, there were only three people in the house. There's one guy in the second story and two guys on the first story. The guy in the second story is taking a shower in the middle of the day. And as he's taking his shower, he hears the door slam, not close. Because, of course, the Debar house is very old, so perhaps there's springs that are creaky. He swears to God that he heard the door slam and slam so hard that he responded by yelling, by yelling, who did that? Why did you do that? What are you doing? That's not funny. So loud that the two guys on the first story all the way down there heard what he was saying and could remember him doing that these many years later. 
The guy in the shower, mind you, got out of the shower to open the door and find that no one was upstairs, marched downstairs and confront the two guys who he thought had just pulled a prank on him. Whereas the two guys are saying, my man, I don't know what you're talking about. We've been down here the whole time. Now, is it possible that one of them did pull a prank on him? Or is it possible that someone from the outside pulled a prank on him? Yeah, it's certainly possible. But to this day, and I asked them about this at least twice a year, they swear to me in confidence that neither of them, neither of those two were upstairs, that there was no one upstairs, and that got, excuse me, the guy in the shower didn't close the door himself. That door slammed on its own in that same bathroom where the cops found the guy that had decapitated his roommate in that house some 20 some odd years ago. So when this happened, we actually, this was before we knew that that house was supposedly haunted. So it was a strange incident of maybe something paranormal that had happened to us. Like I said, there's probably a rational explanation for it, but it does leave kind of an eerie, unsettling, unsettling feeling and that house is still there, and I'm honestly curious if the kids that have lived there after us uh, experience anything. Um, if you know of any of that, please uh, please email me. And with that, uh, I think we got three good stories in today. Um, I've got a lot more coming, so if you're if you uh, if you enjoyed that, just wait till next week because, like I said, we're doing this all of October. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to some more Halloween stories. I'm hoping everybody's enjoying the cooler weather. I hope the weather stays cool. It's supposed to get hot again next week. Not looking forward to that. But um, as always, uh, I'm at ChautauquaReview at gmail.com. That is C-H-A-U-T-A-U-Q-U-A review at gmail. If you have any uh, ghost stories you would like to hear, if you have a ghost story to pitch, or if you have your own personal experiences, I would love to hear them. Uh, I like I like telling personal stories. I, I prefer that. I think it makes for a better story. Um, but as always, if you have any other questions just related to anything in general with the podcast, you can also reach me there. And otherwise, um, I'm so glad that you listened in this week to our first selection of ghost stories, and I'm excited to keep going, and I can't wait to come back next week. And so with that, uh, this is the America of America podcast. And as always, I'm Will Milam, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.